Hello, I'm Fred Burton, and this episode of the Stratfor podcast is sponsored by Spymaster, the latest audiobook from number one New York Times bestselling thriller author Brad Thor. Take a white-knuckle thrill ride with Navy SEAL-turned-covert counterterrorism operative Scott Harvath as he defends freedom by any means necessary. The Spymaster audiobook is as current as tomorrow's headlines. Brad Thor's Spymaster is available now on CD and for download wherever audiobooks are sold. This was a catastrophic event for Pakistan. They had just lost not only their president, but cabinet-level personnel that were aboard the aircraft, too. So uh, there was a lot of suspicions, a lot of finger-pointing, a tremendous amount of saber-rattling. Welcome to the Stratfor Podcast, focused on geopolitics and world affairs from Stratfor.com. I'm your host, Ben Sheen. On August 17, 1988, Pak-1 crashed near Lahore, Pakistan. Those on board the Pakistani presidential aircraft included President Zia al-Haq and multiple members of his Joint Chiefs of Staff. United States Ambassador Arnie Rafael and U.S. Army Brigadier General Herbert Wassam were also on board. There were no survivors. Stratfor Chief Security Officer Fred Burton remembers the day well. 30 years ago, just three years into his service as a counterterrorism agent, the U.S. State Department dispatched him to investigate the crash. In this episode of the podcast, Burton sits down with Stratfor South Asia analyst Faisal Pervez to reflect on that experience and the questions that still linger to this day. Thanks for joining us. I'm Faisal Pervez, and today it's my pleasure to be joined by Fred Burton for a conversation that involves a mysterious plane crash, the death of a dictator, and the final battle of the Cold War. Fred, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for agreeing to do this, Faisal. It should be fun. It's really my pleasure, Fred. Thank you. So, Fred, as some of our listeners may be able to guess, I'm of course talking about the plane crash that killed Pakistani President Ziaul Huq in August of 1988. Now, at the time, you were a young agent with the State Department's Diplomatic Security Service. And I thought, Fred, that before we dive into the discussion, maybe you can set some context here for us in terms of what it was like to be working as an agent in the Cold War. And also, if you could maybe describe very quickly, what exactly does the Diplomatic Security Service do? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, first... uh... The Diplomatic Security Service uh, was uh, founded in 1916. Uh, it actually began as the Bureau of Secret Intelligence for the State Department. So it's got somewhat of a fascinating history that runs through several different time periods in, in our nation's history. In the 1980s, uh, we had a very small counterterrorism branch that was responsible for the investigation of global terrorist events, uh, primarily directed towards U.S. diplomatic missions, uh, U.S. Foreign Service personnel. But then it also invariably included uh, attacks against Americans overseas in any capacity. So our small little branch uh, spent the better part of the 1980s, Faisal, doing nothing but going from uh, terrorist attack to terrorist attack, 
and that included uh, you know events like uh, the Rome Vienna airport massacre by Abu Nidal, uh, the uh, Beirut embassy bombings and numerous hijackings uh, and plane crashes. So in essence, you were living out of a suitcase uh, in a time period uh, when there was no internet, no cell phones. Uh, everybody had uh, old-fashioned Motorola beepers <laughs> and uh, rotary dial phones on their desk. Another era, really. As I was just preparing for this conversation, I was reading through your book, Ghost. And you actually write a few chapters in that book about this exact incident we're going to talk about today. So what I thought I'd do, Fred, is I actually thought I'd read a quick passage from the book to kind of set the context. And then maybe you can tell us a bit more of what you were experiencing and what was going on in your mind. Fire away. Here we go. It says, from my desk behind the big blue door, I reread the cable with a sinking feeling. Pakistan's senior governmental military leaders are all dead. Zia barely held the country together with terror and an iron rule when he was alive. With him dead, Pakistan could dissolve into total chaos with nukes. And all of this is going down at ground zero for the biggest Cold War conflict since Vietnam. So Fred, in this moment, you just received a cable basically giving you a message that you need to get to Pakistan very quickly. So what was going on in your mind at that point when you're reading this message? Uh, how I could uh, try to talk someone else into going. <laughs> but uh, I knew that uh, invariably that uh, my name would be called for this because uh, by this period of time, I had been a agent for three years, which seemed like a lifetime because we had had so many incidents uh, during that time period. I knew that I would be the one going and – uh, you do what you have to do in those moments, Faisal. You um, you place a call, you know, home. You leave a message on the voicemail at home, which in those days was an old-fashioned uh, recorder. And you said, "Hey, I'm going on a trip. I uh, don't know when I'll be back, uh, but see you when I return." Uh, you don't mention where you're going, and you uh, have your go bag in the office that you have some clothes, and you. Uh, uh, head to uh, Andrews Air Force Base, which was uh, our departure point on a special air mission called a SAM mission. And so the trip begins there. So, Fred, basically you get on a flight and you basically touch down in Germany, right? That's correct. Uh, from uh, Andrews Air Force Base, myself and uh, another agent from my group boarded a a huge uh, C-5A Galaxy, which was at the time, I think, the largest aircraft that the Air Force flew. And we flew uh, from um, Frankfurt, Rhein-Main to uh, Chaklala Air Force Base in Islamabad, which was the military side of the uh, commercial airport there. Uh, so you're right here that Zia was our closest ally in South Asia. He spearheaded our covert war against the Soviets in Afghanistan. It is through Pakistan that all our weapons, money, and ammunition flow to the Mujahideen. Now, just as the Soviets have cried uncle and started pulling out of Afghanistan, the key architect of our victory has been burned to ashes. Now, Fred, you and I frequently talk about uh, the U.S.-Pakistan relationship, and obviously today it's not in a very good place. But, you know, for our readers and subscribers, 
uh, you know, I think they're aware that if we dial the clock back three decades in 1988, the U.S. and Pakistan are cooperating in this final battle of the Cold War, where, as you wrote, the U.S. is offering assistance that is being funneled through Pakistan to aid the anti-Soviet Mujahideen in Afghanistan. Uh, Pakistan plays a key role, and of course, President Ziaul Haq played the key role in that as well. And then on top of that, there's another element which certainly it's a it's a dominant theme in the coverage of South Asia, and that is Pakistan's rivalry with India. And India, of course, is a much bigger country that has a stronger military. And Pakistan and India in this time have, of course, developed a nuclear capacity in which they can attack each other with those weapons. So in any case, you land in Pakistan. Then what's kind of the the next step here? You land in Pakistan, uh, and soon thereafter, are you taken directly to the crash site? Or you first interact with some of... uh, your Pakistani counterparts, and what is kind of that interaction like? Because obviously, these investigations are complex, They're, they take a lot of time, and having cooperation with different teams is essential. So what was that uh, that dynamic like for you, Fred? Well, first, it's hard to uh, think about this in today's uh, 24 by 7 news cycle and social media and Twitter and Facebook and so forth, Faisal, but the entire flight over... I'm thinking that uh, you know you have no concept of really what you're getting yourself into until you get there. And literally, the covert support for the Afghan Mujahideen was a highly compartmented operation inside the Beltway. It, you know, I'm convinced that uh, something like that could not be done today uh, because of just leaks and social media and so forth. But uh, we had little visibility, although we were highly cleared, uh, you know, above top secret, so to speak. We had no need to know exactly what was going on at that time period. So literally uh, you, you're you thrown into this uh, mess where you're trying to understand the geopolitics while you're there because you're not reading the cable traffic, uh, as we called it in those days back in Washington. Uh, this was something that was very tightly controlled by the CIA and the National Security Council at the time. So uh, our mission was to figure out what caused President Zia's plane, the C-130, to go down. So uh, there's a lot of um, unknown variables, and you're kind of flying by the seat of your pants. Uh, uh, You're getting up to speed and getting briefings. And then when we landed there in Pakistan, uh, we had some very um, tense meetings with uh, uh, very senior Pakistani military officials, uh, predominantly the Air Force, and and also the the political dynamics of that uh, were most interesting because Zia was army and his pilots were air force and so uh you could just kind of cut the tension in the air and you could sense it and feel it and and it's kind of hard to describe but i i think everybody to include you and all of us uh, and Joshua working the boards here there's been in these kinds of meetings where you just know that there's something else going on and Uh, You really can't put your finger on it, but you know something's just not right. We'll get back to Fred Burton and Faisal Pervez's conversation about the 1988 crash of Pakistan's presidential aircraft in just one moment. But if you'd like to learn more about Burton's experience investigating the Pak-1 crash, be sure to pick up a copy of his book, Ghost, Confessions of a Counterterrorism Agent. We'll include a link in the show notes. 
And if you'd like to hear his insights and experiences on a wide range of other issues related to security and international affairs, you can find many of his reflections collected at Stratfor Worldview under the Lessons from Old Case Files series section. And if you're not already a Stratfor Worldview member, you can register for free limited access or learn more about complete access to our analysis through individual, team and enterprise subscriptions at worldview.stratfor.com slash subscribe. Now back to our conversation about the crash of Pack one 30 years later. You have an investigative mind and you're obviously very keen in being able to ask what are the right questions to get to the bottom of something. There's a point in the, the book where you talk uh, about how you arrive in sort of this desert. Uh, it's a bit like a desert. I think your words were, there's nothing but a vast and empty sea of sand and reddish brown dirt off the runway. And what I wonder is that when you're approaching a crash site, Fred, what is your mental checklist? What are the questions that are going through your mind? What are some of the things that you you want answered and that you're going to look for first? Well, the first thing you're looking for when you arrive on the site, which we, we ultimately did, we took a... Um, uh, a C-130 Hercules, uh, which is interestingly exactly like the one that had crashed uh, from uh, Islamabad to Boala Lapore, Pakistan. Uh, once we got there, the first thing that I'm taking into account going up to the scene is the weather. Uh, it's hot. It's, uh, it's sunny. There's not a cloud in the sky. Uh, and so you sense that weather's not a variable. You kind of sense that. You don't sense that that's going to be a factor. The plane took off in bright daylight. And then as you approach the the actual crash site, what you first see uh, is, uh, to paint a picture for, for our listeners, is you, you have a, a very sandy terrain, which, which looks a lot like rural West Texas and, and, and sagebrush is blowing around and dust devils. And then all of a sudden you see a very noticeable outline uh, of an aircraft that has hit the sand, uh, and you could actually see the wings uh, where they hit. Your initial, my initial assessment was the plane was uh, intact when it hit, because you could physically uh, observe that. So uh, it, it's not rocket science at the time. You just knew that the chances of this uh, aircraft exploding in, in midair had not occurred. Therefore, uh, the plane went down intact. So uh, that helps you think a little bit about uh, next steps once you see that. And in terms of witnesses, Fred, wasn't there a shepherd nearby that you guys interact with and he kind of motions to you that the plane, almost like a roller coaster, was kind of going up and down in the sky? Yeah, that was somewhat amazing, Faisal, because uh, I I digress back to my old – uniform police days before I was an agent, and I uh, told the Pakistani intelligence service uh, minders that was with us, I said, look, we need to do what we call a neighborhood canvas. We need to talk to people to see if anybody saw the plane go down. And um, they agreed and, and were fully cooperative. And and lo and behold, we stumbled upon a, an, an old shepherd, a very old man. I can visualize him in my mind uh, as we're talking about this. And and uh, he didn't speak a, a lick of English, uh, obviously. So we were going through uh, our Pakistani uh, uh, spook uh, handler. He was translating for us. And 
And then the uh, the old shepherd got very animated and, and started moving his arm up and down like uh, giving us a roller coaster kind of motion. You know, he had witnessed this uh, unbelievable event and, and he, he got very uh, animated and agitated and showing this. So it told me at the time that the that the aircraft was out of control to some capacity and uh, went down, which explained why uh, it, it went down intact. Uh, and then, of course, uh, there was a huge um, fire and explosion once it hit. Fred, I guess my, my final question here actually involves uh, going back to India and Pakistan and the rivalry. Uh, because one thing which stood out to me when I was reading the book was how the FBI was not sent to this investigation site. Uh, why was that, Fred? Well, I did not know it at the time. And again, this is another one of the facts. Uh, you know, we launched within 24 hours of the plane crash. And um, I learned subsequently that the White House, uh, the National Security Council, had made a decision that if they – dispatch the FBI, the immediate reaction by the world would be that America, the United States, suspected some sort of foul play, that by sending the FBI, uh, it notes a criminal investigation. Therefore, uh, I guess I was the path of least resistance uh, uh, or the fall guy, so to speak, uh, to go out and try to figure out what happened here. But uh, that was the interesting political dynamics that take place uh, which, um, you know, in retrospect, uh, makes sense because of the the geopolitics uh, between India and Pakistan. You know, look, this was a catastrophic event for Pakistan, and they had just lost not only their president, but their entire cabinet-level group of personnel that were aboard the aircraft, too. So uh, there was a lot of suspicions, a lot of finger-pointing, a lot of initial thoughts that uh, India might have been behind this, and a tremendous amount of saber rattling, Faisal, that I'm only glad I did not see how bad it was. Uh, I was only uh, told about all of this uh, in, uh, upon returning to Washington, uh, you know, a few weeks later. And Fred, so what began with this frantic cable telling you of this fatal plane crash leads to an investigation, which ultimately ends in a report. So what conclusions did you draw from your investigation? Well, uh, I would love for our listeners to uh, pick up a copy of my book, Ghost, <laughs> to figure out what happened. But I'll, I'll give you a, a teaser. Uh, at, uh, at the end of the day, uh, we agreed that the there would be one report, uh, that the Pakistani government would issue the report that uh, our internal findings and investigations – investigative help would uh, be part and parcel to that. And um, the accident board uh, that the Pakistanis put together uh, attributed the crash to a probable criminal act uh, and or sabotage. I will have to vouch for you, Fred, uh, that, yeah, going through Ghost, it's a fun read. And I think that, if anything, it really does, it really put me in the, the driver's seat of what these events are. And as I take a step back and I look at sort of the broader geopolitical landscape, uh, you look at India and Pakistan today, and obviously these two countries remain antagonistic towards each other. They have a rivalry. They have nuclear weapons. They have military capabilities that are designed against the other. And when I look at the United States and Pakistan, which is sort of the subtext of what you're talking about in the book, 
that relationship has really hit the rocks. And we remember that at the beginning of this year, the very first tweet that President Trump sent out was actually criticizing Pakistan. So in some sense, this dynamic of Pakistan projecting power into Afghanistan through proxies continues, and the U.S. is still trying to manage that, and so we go on to another day. So Fred, fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Thanks for doing this, Faisal. My pleasure. Thank you. Many thanks to Stratford's Faisal Pervez and Fred Burton for taking the time to reflect back on the 1988 crash of Pac-1 and the U.S. State Department investigation that followed. I also recently had a chance to sit down with one of Fred Burton's colleagues from his time at the U.S. State Department, Stratford Vice President of Tactical Analysis, Scott Stewart, and we talked about some of the latest offerings from our Stratford ThreatLens team. ThreatLens is a resource we provide to help corporations, international organizations, and government agencies identify, anticipate, measure, and mitigate threats to their operations around the globe. With me today in the Stratfor studio, I have Scott Stewart, uh, who's going to be talking with me a little bit about Stratfor ThreatLens. Scott, thanks for joining me today. Uh, thanks for having me on, Dan, and uh, it's, it's great to be here and talking to you and our audience. Absolutely. So, Scott, for people who aren't necessarily familiar with Stratfor ThreatLens, um, can you give us a quick overview of what Stratfor ThreatLens is? Yeah, really, ThreatLens was uh, uh, an attempt by the company to really uh, increase the, the coverage we were giving to protective intelligence type topics. Uh, and, and we've been doing that at Stratfor, you know, for, for decades now. But we really wanted to uh, increase the amount of coverage of these topics, such as terrorism and insurgency, organized crime, uh, other kinds of uh, business espionage risks, and really business continuity problems, and, and really provide that to, to empower corporate security directors and other that are concerned with, with risk and security to be able to do their jobs better. And it's been a real uh, success in the way we've been able to take a lot of this uh, security coverage that we used to have on Stratfor, break it out into this very unique product that is certainly essential in the way that a lot of security professionals conduct themselves on a day-to-day basis. And it's about to get a lot more special, isn't it, with the release of the, the next iteration of uh, Stratfor ThreatLens? Yeah. Uh, when we, I mean, one of the things that, that we really try to think about when we're looking at the ThreatLens material is, is understand that, uh, you know, what we're writing and what we're providing to the clients are is really a tool to start a dialogue with them. Um, you know, we, we really want to provide them with, with information, but at the same time, it's a jumping off point uh, for them to engage with us and with our analyst team about topics that are of interest to them in, in uh, you know, in that realm. We've always tried to, to be responsive to their needs. And uh, because of that, we, we've gone through and kind of put out the second version of ThreatLens to, to make it uh, just a little bit more accessible. But it's also customizable, which I think is is huge. So, you know, if that's really your interest, you can go to the analysis page first. Uh, if you are more interested in what's going on in a specific country, you can go to the risk dashboard and look at the specific countries that you selected there. Or really go to our threat monitoring tab and just have kind of global situational awareness of items that are happening across the globe. And I know you're being a little modest when you say redesign because there's been a huge amount of work behind the scenes to really tailor this to, to what the, what the customer uh, wants and, and needs. And uh, it's the best way to, to get our refined product to them uh, in an actionable and timely way. So what are some of the features that you're really excited about, Scott, on uh, this latest iteration of ThreatLens? Well, one of the things, uh, and actually some of it's going to be a little bit invisible, 
but but really, even in the the analysis tab, uh, where, where the in depth stuff is, we we've started changing the way uh, that we're writing. Quite honestly, we're trying to put uh, more of the takeaways in the headlines uh, so that the uh, the readers can know right away what's up front. We're, we're trying to put bulleted, uh, you know, why is this important up at the top? I mean, most of our clients are very busy. They're getting hit by a lot of information. And this gives them the ability to say, you know, this is something I'm interested in. I want to read more. Uh, they can bookmark it, obviously, send it to their, their library uh, to read, uh, you know, later on. If it's something that that's not necessarily I need to read it now, but I'm interested in. That's really one of the things has been that, that customization and the, the ability to select how you want to really consume the content. Absolutely. And I think that's certainly some of the feedback we've been getting through from customers. They really enjoy, you know, the hard hitting, in-depth data first approach that we have, but actually being able to tailor it to individual users so they can get maximum value from it. That's been something that we've really uh, driven towards, hasn't it? Yeah. And, and that really shows up in, in the risk dashboard now. Um, you know, many of our clients, especially some of the larger companies, you know, have uh, various users on the portal. And, and quite frankly, if you're a, a Latin America uh, security director, you're not as concerned about what's going on in, in Asia or South Asia as, as the guys over there. Uh, so really with the risk dashboard, we allow the clients to select which countries that they look at first. And so they can kind of pull what we call a card and, and place that on the dashboard. And that will give them a kind of a curated content feed of uh, content related to that, those specific countries. Uh, which is, is, you know, very useful to them. And of course, through the way that they set up their notifications, uh, they can also customize it very heavily. Uh, you know, whether they want to get it by text message, whether they want to get it by email, what kind of content they want to receive, you know, whether it's individual items, whether it's a digest form, when they receive the digest, uh, when they receive the item. So we really want to, uh, and, and also they can customize based on, you know, country, threat, uh, other, you know, keywords and tags. So it's, it, it allows them to kind of get what they want, when they want it and how they want it. And that's, that's really important because we're actually, we've taken this, uh, this feedback and, and built it into the new model. And I know, Scott, uh, you know, beyond obviously running, managing the team and, uh, making sure threat lenders everything it can be, you spend a lot of time in the field. What's some of the user feedback you're getting from people that have, you know, had first exposure to this, this latest iteration of threat lens? I, I, it's, it's been very well received so far. I had a chance to go to, uh, ASIS uh, over in Rotterdam and uh, where I had an iPad with uh, the version 2.0 and it was just uh, it was fun being able to kind of interact with with the clients let them you know see what it was uh, not only the current clients uh, and, and then see the you know the shift over uh, but for prospective clients and and you know kind of see how this information can be useful to them in, in their various roles. Another thing that I'm interested in is sort of what next for ThreatLens. Clearly, uh, you know, you guys, you're never sitting still. You're always uh, looking ahead to the horizon. Um, what can we expect for sort of further developments on the uh, on the ThreatLens front? One of the things, obviously, is, is we're, we're trying to stay ahead analytically of, of, the, of the curve. So we're really looking at the trends, uh, you know, for our various forecasts, whether it's the, the general forecasts, whether it's specific forecasts of, uh, you know, things like the jihadist movement, or, uh, you know, other, other global dynamics. So a lot of that is, you know, really what we're, we're focusing on kind of maniacally. At the same time, we are really very focused on continuing to make the product uh, more user-friendly. So, so we want to continue to interact with the clients, find out, uh, you know, what they like. You know, are there things that we need to adjust? Uh, because we, we, we really do value uh, their time, and we don't want to steal their time by making something difficult to use. They're, they have so much information coming at them every day. They have so many tools. We want to make this something that, that's easy to use, that's useful, intuitive, and gets them what they need when they need it. 
Well, I think that's a brilliant point to end on. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for taking the time to talk through some of the new features of Threat Lens. Uh, absolute pleasure to have you in the studio and uh, speak to you soon. Thanks, man. Scott Stewart is Stratfor's Vice President of Tactical Analysis and leads Stratfor's Threat Lens team. And that's it for this episode of the Stratfor podcast. Thanks again to Scott Stewart, Fred Burton, and Faisal Pervez for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about Fred Burton's experience as a counterterrorism agent and the crash of Pac-1, we'll include links in the show notes. And you can learn more about Stratfor Threat Lens, our protective intelligence solution for organizations operating around the world, at stratfor.com slash threat lens. We also have some related video webcast discussions and threat lens updates available on our blog at stratfor.com slash horizons. Just click on the events section. And for more geopolitical intelligence, analysis, and forecasting that reveal the underlying significance and future implications of emerging world events, follow us on Twitter at Stratfor. Stratfor.